Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Last week I said I was going to try to wrap up with our series on prayer, and I didn't get it done. Uh, so we got to do one more installment uh, because it just would not be right to land it where we did. Uh, so a little bit of review. We've been talking about prayer over the last 72 months. No, just kidding. Uh, the last number of weeks, and uh, we've been looking at prayer with this premise that your belief will determine your behavior, and there are theologies that will undermine your prayer life. They will disengage your heart. You will be hard-pressed to stay engaged in intercession unless you understand why it matters theologically. And if you buy into a theology that says it really doesn't matter what you pray because God's going to do what God's going to do without it anyway, you're going to find it hard to get up early in the morning and make it here for prayer. You're going to find it really hard to push away from your tacos to fast. I, was just, I don't know why. This, this just came in my mind this morning. And uh, I know, I'm, I'm notorious. I'm the Elmer Fudd of preachers. I'm going to chase a rabbit. I, I, someone posted on Facebook a while back. They said that, that somebody they saw said they didn't like tacos. They said, I blocked them on Facebook. I don't need that kind of negativity. And uh, I said, amen. So what that has to do with our message? Nothing. But... If you, if, you don't, if you don't understand why it matters for you to fast and pray, you won't do it. And so we're trying to lay a theological ground uh, grid work so, uh, that will engage our hearts in prayer. So we've looked at four categories of theology to get there. There are key, four key categories. And off of that, there's many streams. We've gotten into all kinds of rabbit trails in this series. But there are four key components to engaging our hearts in prayer. The first one is a biblical cosmology. That is the context in which you pray. There is a system that God himself set up. I just alluded to it a moment ago. Uh, Psalm chapter 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. So God delegated the earth to man. He delegated history to humanity. And history belongs to the intercessor. The fall was not just an event, it's a force. There is a gravitational pull to immorality that will pull history down unless the saints engage and pull it up. And so... God delegated the earth to man. We, we looked in Hebrews chapter 2 where uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews adds to that. He quotes, What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man you would visit him? He made him a little lower and the angels put everything under his feet. And then he adds this, Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? Because man abdicated what God delegated. But Jesus won it back. It's interesting, that little phrase, God put everything under his feet. Now we see in Ephesians chapter 1, the last two verses, it says that God has God put everything under Jesus' feet, comma, for the church. 
So we have our authority back in Christ. It's not that God ever took our authority. It's that we relinquish it because to whom you obey, to him you are a slave. The, the, the authority that the enemy retains because he's been stripped of his power, according to Colossians chapter 2, the only authority he has is abdicated human authority. If he, can, if he can enslave men, he can utilize their authority to manifest his kingdom. So in delegating the earth to man, God made it possible for man to manifest the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And so this is the context in which prayer takes place. And we need to understand that because we have to realize that it does matter if we pray. We wring our hands saying, God, why don't you do something? And God looks at us and says, why don't you pray? Invite me. And so we boil down the principle of this. Divine intervention only by human invitation. Divine intervention only by human invitation. Not all that happens is God's will, and God's will does not always happen. God is not willing that any should perish, yet people do. So God delegated the earth to man and he introduced this concept called prayer that we invite his divine intervention. So that explains the event of prayer. We looked at, we looked at God's nature, the, the nature and character of God because we need to realize the God we're praying to, not just the context in which prayer happens. We need to understand the God we're engaging here. The God that we're engaging is willing to intervene. He is wanting to intervene. We talked about that, that principle in, in uh, Romans chapter 9, or chapter 11 rather. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Those, those two elements, those two facets of God's nature. We haven't talked about this principle in, in a long time. Matter of fact, it's probably been years where we really drew this out on a whiteboard. But if you look at the nature and character of God, there are really two sides to God's nature. There is, as a matter of fact, you, you, let, let me back up and put it this way. Your word is an expression of your character. God's word is an expression of his character. When we say out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that is not just relegated to human beings. That is true of God as well. Out of the abundance of the heart, God spoke and we have his word. The written word of God. The only reason we can trust the written word is because we can trust the character of the author, the heart of the author. And the written word of God is divided into two halves. It's the old covenant and the new covenant. There's the justice and the mercy, which elicits fear and love, which results in repentance and faith. It's a beautiful thing that when we see God for who he is, it actually births within our heart the necessary response to enter into relationship with him. The problem is that we as human beings tend to just, just kind of gravitate to one end of God's character or another side of God's character. We tend to be in balance or we tend to be all about the justice of God and live in the fear of God, which will result in uh, an error that the New Testament calls legalism, or we tend to zero in on the mercy of God. 
And then we, we, it tends to birth in our heart love because he who is forgiven much loves much. But if we're not careful, if we don't have that counterbalance, this is why Paul said, consider therefore, that the idea behind that, that word in the Greek is keep it at the forefront of your mind. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. They're the two lenses with which we need to relate with God with. And if we don't have that other side, there's another error that the New Testament addresses called licentiousness. Or in simple terms, license to sin. But when we live between the tension of the justice and the mercy, fear and love, there, there's three different verses that address these two terms together, fear and love. There's, um, I want to say, uh, in, in Acts, I want to say it's Acts chapter 9, it says, the church grew in the, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. There's this, this balance. And in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, it's chapter 5, he says, no, he says, the love of God constrains us. Paul is giving the two motivators of his ministry. So he says, the love of God constrains us. There's something about the love of God that kept Paul in ministry, kept that sacrificial life alive within him. Two verses later, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So he says the other great motivator of his ministry was the fear of God. How can you fear someone you love? The fear of the Lord is not something that makes us run from God. It makes us run to God. Matter of fact, Tozer, he wrote this great little article one time and it's summed up in this little phrase. The only safe place from God is God. We run from him to him and we hide in the cleft of the rock. Jesus is the rock. And so when we see him for who he is, when we see his nature, for what it is. Then we, we have this balance. We have to pray because God is just. There is an urgency for our nation to pray because God is just. But it matters that we pray because he's merciful. If all I saw was his justice, I would despair. But if all I saw was his mercy, I would be apathetic. But that living within the tension of those two keeps me in the pocket and keeps me praying and keeps me between the lines. And, and there's, there, really, if you begin to extrapolate those two concepts out, there's a whole lot of application. Maybe we can take a deep dive on that some other time. But So we have the cosmology, we have the theology, the, the nature and character of God, and then we looked at our anthropology, the nature of man. And, and the reason this is so important is we need to realize that by creation, you and I have been given divine equipment by which we are to shape history. God has given you equipment. He's given you a mind, will, and emotions. And your will and emotions really do matter. Prayer is not just a function of our intellect where we just pray what we think we should pray. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There is a fervency that we must engage. And when we see God for who he is and we realize the tremendous authority he's given us, there's an engagement of the heart. The fires of passion begin to engage and we begin to cry out to God. We need fervency in prayer. One of my big encouragement right now is those of you that have been coming out. I'm telling you, I'm so grateful for you. 
and the fervency that I've seen. It's, it's a God thing. The level of fervency and passion that, we, that has been maintained over these weeks and now months. And I know you can't work that up, but it must be cooperated with. God has to step in and ignite that. And part of that is what we're talking about. Getting our theology straight. But there's also a surrender of our heart to that. I'm so grateful for that. Jeremiah, one of the J's in scripture, Jeremiah put it this way. He said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. It takes wholeheartedness that we invest ourselves in this thing. But then there's the will. It's not just, there is a place for emotion in prayer. Passion, the ignition of your passions. Those that say there's no place for emotion in Christianity, either have a lousy marriage or they have a disconnect between their theology and their marriage. Because try telling that to your wife. There's no place for emotion in my commitment to you. Good luck with that, sir. There's a, if it's going on in our heart, it's going to ignite our passions. But then we talked last week about the will. And I want us to understand this. Your will is a holy weapon from heaven. God has invested your will. Your will is the pry bar of the Spirit. And God has invested tremendous authority behind your will. He literally wants to use you to move things in history, to move things in the spirit. But there needs to be a holy resolve. And that's why we talked about last week. There are two battles that are always going on in prayer. And the initial battle is the internal one so God can gain the upper hand in the external one. Anytime you're praying for anything... When you really go into a season of prayer, I'm not, I'm not talking about when you pray over a meal or you just you know, throw up a prayer to stop it. I'm talking about when you engage heaven on a real request, when you step into that season of prayer where you say, I'm going to start praying until. There's always two battles taking place simultaneously. The internal battle of me aligning myself with him and the external battle about which I'm praying about. And if I do not win the internal battle, I will never see the victory in the external battle. Your heart is the beachhead of heaven's invasion. When I first became the pastor of this church, we began to fast and pray for a move of God. And one day as we were praying, I saw a vision of a Kool-Aid pitcher. <laughs> it's the one my mom had when we were kids. It was burnt orange. It went with our avocado green refrigerator. <laughs> Boy, you should have saw the carpet. It was wild. Psychedelic, baby. And, uh, and so this Kool-Aid pitcher was one molded piece of plastic. Had a handle molded into it. Had a spout. And then there was this white plastic lid, and it turned, and you could turn the lid. And on one side, it had three holes. You could, you could turn it to align those three holes with the spout, or you could, if you really want to do some rocking with your Kool-Aid, you turn it all the way around. There was a square. No, no, it had a big opening. And then you'd align the opening on the lid with the spout, and then the, the Kool-Aid could pour out. And the Lord showed me that. And this is what he told me. He said, Dave, you are the lid on revival in this region. And I thought, Lord, what are you saying? And I, I'm not arrogant enough to think that he was saying that, Dave, you're in control of all this. 
But what he was telling me is your intercession matters. And you, what you pray with your mouth will have to first find a landing strip in your own life. If you're praying for my kingdom to be manifest out there, I'm going to start dealing with you in here. And if I can't adjust you, I'll, you'll never see the victory out there. You see... When, it, when he showed me that picture, I looked at the lid and the lid was barely lined up with the spout. The, the obstacle to revival was not out there, it was in here. My life was not aligned with him. And I began to realize, oh, fasting is not a hunger strike where I throw a hissy fit and say, God, if you don't answer, I'm going to die. I won't eat unless you do something. Fasting is not to change the mind of God. God wants to see revival more than I do. Fasting is about changing me. And that God wanted to grab my life and through fasting and intercession, he wanted to begin to do a work in me and align me with him. There's a, there's a principle in intercession, especially seasons of intercession. And that's not to say, of course, we should always be sensitive to the spirit of God. But there is a heightened sensitivity in a season of urgency where we begin to be sensitive to God's dealings with us. Those of you that preach the word, you know what I mean. When you've, you've and, and, and I hate to admit this, it shouldn't be like this, but I'm just telling you it is. If there's a situation where I've got to preach and, and I know there's a lot on the line with this one, then there's a heightened sensitivity in my heart. I don't want to grieve the Lord. And I've, I've known I, the Lord's pulled me into different seasons of intercession. I remember back in 2004, where many of us were gripped by intercession. Just this, this burden from the Lord came upon us and many of you were around at that time. And there was just this weeping that would come over us. And I remember just this sensitivity. I'd be driving through town and if someone cut me off the road, I, just, I didn't want anything in my heart. It's like, bless you, bless you. you know? I, I didn't want anything in my heart towards anyone because I didn't want to grieve him. Because I intuitively knew, I didn't understand it theologically, but I understood it in my heart of hearts that God, I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to hinder your answer to these prayers. There's so much on the line. That's what God is after. That's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about when we abide in him and he abides in us. Ask what you will and it shall be done. How much of you is really abiding in him and him in you? Prayer is what brings you into alignment where you abide together. It's not earning your prayer. I'm not talking about legalism whereby our righteousness earns prayer. But James does say the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why? Because you can cancel with your life what you pray with your mouth. You can say you want something to happen out there. But if you're contradicting it with your life, words are cheap. Actions speak louder than words. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't pray it until we're fully living it. It's prayer is the mechanism or the process by which he brings us into alignment. It's the process where he makes it real in our life. That's why, again, I said... This, the, the fact that God delegated it to us uh, uh, explains why prayer is necessary, the event of prayer, but it does not explain the process. The last two components of our theology is what explains the process of prayer, our anthropology 
and our demonology and our angelology. There's two subsets to this. That's why I wanted, to, I wanted to close with angels. Last week we closed with demons. What a bummer, you know? Let's, let's land with some angels, okay? If we can get there this morning. But it's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. The reason prayer is a process and not an event is because it takes time to change the prayer. When God showed me that picture, he began to deal with me about D-Day and how the Allied forces wanted to go into France. That would be their entrance into the continent. And they had to secure the beach. And they knew it was going to be costly. But if they could get a beachhead, both sides, the Allied forces and the Nazi forces, knew if we can secure a beach, it's just a matter of time. The war is won. And the Lord began to deal with me about how it's our, our heart is the beachhead of God's invasion. God needs to secure a landing strip on, on planet earth. He's out to capture more of you. And if he can capture more of you from there, he can begin to change history. We are the beachhead. And the allied forces knew at the end of that day on D-Day, the war is over. Now here's the catch. The bloodiest battles were yet to be fought, but they knew it's just a matter of time. God is looking for a landing strip. And so then we talked last week about the demonic and, and uh, how, this, uh, how we're contending against this. And uh, I want to I pick up where we left off last week somewhat. Uh, and so that was an introduction. We're in trouble. Okay. Let's just pray. I just, I feel the burden of the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you chose that we should live at this hour in human history. Lord, you chose us for such a time as this. Those words from Esther are echoing in my spirit. I have brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, we need to receive that. Sons and daughters of God, I have brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's time for us to prepare ourselves to go before the throne and petition for the, the preservation of our nation just like Esther did. Oh, Jesus. Lord, speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we, we were talking last week. Uh, I don't even remember all that we talked about. Uh, ultimately, uh, there is, if we draw out our box... That's our cosmology. God's at the top of the box. He's the one we're praying to. We're at the bottom of the box on earth, praying to him. <laughs> but in between that are angels and demons. We are in a battle in heavenly places. And we talked about that phrase last week, eperonios, in heavenly places. It talk, it, literally, the Greek word means it's, it's an unseen dimension superimposed over the scene. That's literally what it means. The Greek is multiple heavens. It's not just a big void up there and God sits at the top on a, on a cloud. There are multiple dimensions. There are 
three heavens, at least that we know of. I believe, personally, my theology is that they're first, second, and third heaven. The first heaven is the one we see when we look out the window. The second heaven is not a, a far off place, but it's a dimension that surrounds us. It's a spiritual realm. And the third one is the one in which God resides and rules over, and it's the one we aspire to as our eternal abode. Those are the three heavens. Jewish theology does teach seven heavens, and we'll find out when we get there uh, which who is right. But the Bible does, Paul talks about going to the third heaven. But even in the second heaven, there's multiple realms that Paul alludes to in Ephesians chapter 1, twice in chapter 2, again in chapter 3, and then in chapter 6. And in those multiple realms reside blessings that have been given to us as a divine right. We have all spiritual blessings in heavenly realms in Christ. It's in him that we have these blessings. But then in chapter 6, it says there are princip- we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in Eperonios, the same place. They reside, they are ruling over those realms that have been given to us. We're seated in them according to chapter 2, and the blessings that are in them belong to us. But that seated position is a delegation of authority. It's an invitation to take occupancy, but we need to move move into our inheritance. Just like Joshua going into the promised land. The Lord told him, every place you place your foot is yours. And then he had to spend the rest of the book fighting bloody battle after bloody battle to put his foot in the very place that said it was his. The same is true of you and I. And we are fighting for those realms of blessing. We're to displace those principalities and powers because the realms above are connected to the regions beneath. That is why the prince of Persia was designated, his name was the prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 9. This, virtually all scholars understand, they, they, the, 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 all scholars in agreement that the prince of Persia was not a human king. It was a ruling principality in the spiritual realm over Persia. And Daniel went into 21 days of fasting and prayer. And on the 21st day, an angel shows up with a bent halo and a bent wing. And <laughs> he said, I've been fighting ever since you went to prayer to give you, to, I, the day you started praying, I came, I headed out, but I was resisted by the prince of Persia. And he said, then Michael came and kicked some, some demon hiney and I was able to get through and deliver this message to you. And then he adds, he said, and next I got to go, I got to go fight the prince of Greece. Oh, the job description of an angel. But he's fighting to deliver a message. But it's interesting, the prince palady over that region shared the name of the region over which the realm was. Because there are, the, the spiritual realms are connected to the regions beneath. And there are realms above Iowa that you and I are to move into spiritually and begin to move into our inheritance. And that is where the angelic comes in. So what we want to talk about in the next few minutes is this, DTR. Anybody know what the word DTR means? Or phrase DTR? Define the relation. It was all the, the, the ladies raise their hand. Why, why is it that ladies know DTR? Because it, you define the relationship. That's good, ladies. Every woman needs to, need to know that concept. DTR is define the relationship. What the idea is, it's used a lot in, in counseling, uh, you know, especially in, uh, with young men and young women, counseling 
them to prepare for romantic relationships. You got to have the DTR talk. We got to define the relationship because when you define it, you can then understand the expectations you can impose upon them. You know what's expected of you. You don't expect your boyfriend to pay your rent and you don't expect your husband to have a separate checking account. Why? Because those are two different relationships. And the relationship, defining the relationship, will determine the expectation. And so you DTR, you define the relationship. It's being used now more in corporate America because that's very helpful to deal with, uh, you know, expectations. And you ever been in a relationship with someone that doesn't live up their side of the partnership? It's frustrating. So you have a DTR talk. Let's define the relationship. Well, Hebrews chapter 1 gives us the DTR for the angels, all right? Listen to this, if I can find it here. It's just a very short little verse, if I can find it. Here, I'll have to look it up in the Bible. I had it written down here. Essentially, it says, all, are not all angels ministering spirits? sent to serve the heirs of salvation. Yeah, right there, verse 14. Are not all ministering spirits, angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Different translations say it different ways, but essentially it's defining the relationship and therefore the expectation. Angels, by the way, from a biblical perspective, a theological perspective, is not a class of being as much as it is a job description. It seems from scripture and an overview that there are different types of beings that fit within the category of angels at, at given times. But there are, that the word literally means messenger. They are the ones, they are to bring us messages. But in this, that's why we see Daniel praying and that angel is bringing him a message and he's, he's receiving opposition because the demonic realm doesn't want the message that he needs to arrive to him because it's going to help him over what he's praying about. So in this passage, the, the relationship is defined. Angels are servants sent to serve a specific group of people. Who? The heirs of salvation. In the relationship, our relationship with the angelic is we are heirs, they are servants. Their job is to help us get into what God has, in, has for us, to move into our inheritance. And so when we understand our destiny, when we understand what we're called to, we can cooperate with the angels. There's a lot of ladies who are frustrated because God made a woman for man that she might be a helpmeet unto him. Now that's not the only role of a woman's life, but as a wife, a woman is meant to come alongside the man and be a helpmeet. She's to help him get where he needs to go. That's why we have that phrase, behind every good man's a good woman. But notice that God didn't give Adam a wife until he first gave him a job. Because an unemployed man is hard to serve because what are you helping him get into? He's got to have some direction in his life. Now, if you're temporarily looking for a job, I'm not beating up on you, sir. But I'm just telling you, if you don't have direction for your life, you frustrate the one that the Lord brought alongside you to bring you into your relationship. I would propose to you a lot of angels feel the same way. <laughs> There's a lot of frustrated angels because they're, work, they're assigned to somebody who doesn't know what they're called to. 
One of the ways we can cooperate with the angels is listen to what the Lord tells us in his word. The teaching we've had on Wednesday night, there was some great teaching by Robert Henderson two weeks ago on, on discerning what you are called to. What is the grace of God in your life? And he had five points there that were really good. I should have pulled them out. They were wonderful. But if we don't know what we're called to, we can frustrate angelic activity, literally. Because the angels are here to help you. Now, one of their initial roles, I'm sure, in our life is to bring us messages now, those messages may come through highlighting the word as we're reading. May, I, don't, I don't know how all that works, but there's angelic aid that comes and highlights things in the word or gives impressions to people. Much, uh, much of prophetic ministry involves the angelic. We're just not aware of it. But there, there, there's messages coming from God to define our role so that the angels can help us get there. I don't just base that on this verse. Think about the first time I ever uh, realized this, Ty and I were driving in his truck in Atlanta. We were driving across, across the city and we got to talking about angels and I'd never thought about that verse in that light before and the Lord reminded me of the angel that he was going to send with the children of Israel. Remember, he said, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not, my presence will not go with me, with you. But I will send my angel with you and he will bring you into the land that you were promised. Think about that. The angel was assigned to bring a whole nation into their inheritance. That is the role of the angelic. The ultimate role is to get us where we need to go. Now, there are angels assigned to individuals. Scripture, Jesus said that, uh, that a little child, his, their angels... Uh, are before the face of God. So every, people have angels. Churches have angels in the book of Revelation. When John the Revelator was writing, the, he had this prophetic encounter. God tells him to come up and he's having, he's having all these encounters and, and the, he gets a message for the seven churches and he writes them to the angel of the church. Now, some, some scholars will say, well, I think we think he's talking to the pastors because it's a messenger. But the only reason to believe that is when you don't understand the, what angels are. There would have been a whole lot of other words that would have, would have been more consistent with Scripture to call them an angel. If you're talking to a pastor. He was literally talking to the angels. Why? Because Psalm 103 talks about angels and it says this. Praise him, O you angels, you who obey the voice of his word. So how do we, how do we engage the angelic? We engage the angelic by, being, by knowing who we are as an individual. There are angels assigned to families. And when you know your family's calling, you can, as you are more in tune with what God has called you to, and you are about the assignment of the Lord on your life, you are actually inviting angelic invitation by your obedience, by your engagement, by your cooperation with the plan of God in your life. If you're off doing something else, if you're not doing what God has called you to do, you are going to reduce your angel to the ministry he had with Jacob, beating you up. Well, that's kind of a joke, but you just never know. It, uh, if, if you aren't doing what you're called to do, then you, you force him to take on a role to get you where you need to go that isn't going to be as pleasant. 
And so there are angels that are involved in our life to get us where we need to go. There are angels over churches. And what, what John the Revelator did, he received an encounter, a message, and then he preached that message through a letter to the angels of the churches. Why? Because those angels were assigned to help those churches get where they needed to go. We need to understand the destiny on a church. Not every church is called to the same thing. And so as we discern the calling on our churches, we can begin to make those proclamations and, and declare over our church and pray. And there is a place in prayer. Prayer will engage the angels, but there's something that will even more so engage the angelic, and that is proclamation. I'm not talking about just any old proclamation you want to make. I'm talking about you proclaiming the word of the Lord. When God says something over your life, you need to rehearse that. Somebody, the other night we were talking in uh, the Wednesday night class, and uh, I think it was Terry was talking uh, about how we, Terry Johnson, we were, he was talking about how when the Lord begins to speak to you about the call on your life, you need to talk about that thing. You need to own it. You need to begin to rehearse that. You need to wear that thing until you're comfortable in it. And that's true. Because when you are engaged with that thing and comfortable with that thing and you declare that over your life and sometimes when God first begins to deal with us, there's an uncomfortability about the word of the Lord. We don't, we don't feel comfortable with it right at that time. Your future destiny is always bigger than you in the present. And part of the purpose of the prophetic is to pull you into it and grow you up into it. To get you to own that thing. And so as we begin to talk about that and own that thing, we literally begin to engage, engage the spiritual realm. Because prayer is not just an, us crying out to God and wrestling with this demonic realm that we're bumping up against. There are spirits, there are aids that come alongside us, servants of wind and fire that are assigned to our life to help us break into our inheritance. And we need to realize that. This is sound scriptural theology. It's all through scripture. If you were to take the angelic out of scripture, literally you pulled the pins of the angelic out of scripture, the whole, all of redemptive history would collapse in on itself. At the key points of human history, angels begin to show up and help the heirs of salvation. They come alongside and they strengthen them. They protect them. They... Um, they, they bring messages of encouragement. They strengthened Jesus after 40 days of fasting and testing. And so we need to understand the crucial nature of the angelic. But there's something beyond merely crying out to God for his purposes. It's when we begin to recognize the purposes of God and we have clarity on this thing then we begin to declare it. Not just petition, but proclamation. We begin to declare the purposes of God. We begin to use the authority that God has invested in us and to release that out. And those things become the, the, the marching orders of the angelic. They become the, the, the uh, marching orders. They begin to build the prophetic future that God has declared to us. And this is an important principle. Some of you have heard me share this story before. But I want to just share it real quick. Because we are in a battle. It was a number of years ago now. 
we were going through a, it was just, it was just, it was a time of just intense battle. And I was standing in my office on a Friday. There was no one else here. And I realized there was just this, this torment in my mind. It was like barrage of thoughts and just pressure uh, on my mind. And all of a sudden I just became aware. I thought, man, I've been living under this and I didn't even realize it. And all of a sudden I knew this is witchcraft. And as soon as that thought came in my mind, I saw a vision of this gentleman. Well, I wouldn't call him a gentleman. He was a guy. And uh, he was in his house praying at night against me. This guy was a believer. Okay. And he was praying in his house against me during the night because he felt he knew more about how to run this church than I did. And so he was releasing his prayers across town. And the Lord began to talk to me about the nature of witchcraft and how witchcraft is us trying to manipulate someone by spiritual means. And he began to talk to me about how witchcraft is actually counterfeit prayer. The Lord showed me this scaffolding in, in, in a picture of my mind. And he said, the, the enemy doesn't have anything unique. He has nothing new. He operates on the scaffolding, on the system that I created. And the system is this. I have delegated man tremendous authority. And as you make declarations according to my will, the angels will pick up your declarations as marching orders and they will fly and they will begin to build and battle and produce what I have, have told you I want it produced. I've given you authority. He said, but you need to understand the demonic will also use your words. And if you speak your own words and you get sideways with people and you begin to say things against people, your complaining, your gossip, your insults, your, your slander can actually be picked up by the demonic and used as permission slips because you're the one with authority. I can begin to use those to afflict their mind. The, the enemy, can, not God, the enemy can use those to begin to afflict their mind. And that's exactly what I was under. This affliction from this person who got outside. The other element of witchcraft is not just praying your own will, but it's, it's that demands that you assume a role that is not delegated to you. That's why the New Testament uses this term. Those, it talks about both angels and men who refused their original estate. They refused to stay in the assignment of God, but they step out and they assume authority not given to them by God. And so I called the guy and I said, hey, I need to talk to you. He said, sure, I'll be right over. And I shared with him what I just shared with you. And he just stared at me. And so I, I thought I was expecting a response. And so I began to share it with him again. And he put his hand up. He said, Dave, I know more about this than you realize, which freaked me out, frankly. And so I just, then I just told him, listen. And I gave him a stern warning from the Lord and at which point he started weeping and he fell at my feet and said, pray for me. And so I did. And then he left. It was the weirdest thing. I've only seen that man two times since that time. And uh, this was years ago. It was the weirdest thing. And I told him, I said, listen, I expect to get hit from the front. We're in a battle. But I don't expect to get hit from behind. We have got to be careful. You have been invested with tremendous authority. Your words carry weight. And what scripture says, Psalm 103, praise him, O you angels, comma, 
And then he defines what they do. You who obey the voice of his word. God wants to release his word to us. And as we spend time in prayer, we begin to catch his heart, his mind in things. But there's a place where it goes from petition to proclamation. And we begin to proclaim those things. Just like John the Revelator wrote to the angels. Why? Because he understood that principle. As he releases the word of the Lord, they will pick those words up and begin to build the prophetic future. God wants to teach us to govern with him through fasting and prayer. But in order to do so, we need to be aligned with him. I don't want my words to be used against people. I wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. There are angel, angelic aid. There, there are angels that are assigned to your life, to this church, to this nation, to this city. Just as there is a hierarchy of the demonic, there is a hierarchy of the angelic. And God has given us these, these aids, these uh, cohorts, if you will. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that the angels were Jesus' companions. We've got companions in the spirit. Compadres. They are friendly towards you. They are here to help you. Amen? Hallelujah. Gloria. They, uh, that was my attempt at Spanish, by the way. The, uh, God, they they, they want to help us get where we need to go. And we need to be aware of that and heightened awareness and begin to ask, Lord, we're asking you, God, that you would send your angels. Lord, as we make these declarations, we see what you say in your word. As we get some direction and prayer, Father, we're working with you. We want to see breakthrough. We are not alone in the battle. Remember the, the prophet of old, Elisha, and the whole city was surrounded. And his, his servant came and said, Elisha, Elisha, we're going to die, we're going to die. Don't you love those believers coming, want to encourage you with a word? We're going to die, we're going to die. And he said, oh Lord, open his eyes that he would see. There are more with us than there are against us. And he, when his eyes were opened, the hills were surrounded by chariots and the angelic. We need to be aware of the, the weaponry God's given us. He's given us authority. He's given us a will. But he's also given us external help in the angelic. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you again for this hour. Lord, that you saw fit that we should be alive now. Lord, at this crucial hinge moment in our history and in world history. We thank you. And Lord, we say yes. Lord, we surrender to the call. We embrace it, Lord. We celebrate it. Now, Lord, I'm asking God that you would open the eyes of our understanding and help us to realize the immense authority and the aid that you've put at our side, Lord. And that you would strengthen us for this continuing season of intercession. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.